Good afternoon. So, last night, remember what we did? We talked about biblical theology. Do you remember what biblical theology is? Oh no, do I have to do it again? <laughs> Someone summarize in your own words, what is biblical theology? Study a concept through the whole Bible. All right, I'm going to thank you for that, for that. That is a way to do it, and we're going to talk about this in a moment. Um, go ahead. Okay, he so said the story of the Bible revolving around Jesus Christ. Good. Okay. Sorry about that, Dan Davy. <laughs> Anyone else have a, a definition that you could put together in your own words? What is biblical theology? Yes. Yeah. So somehow the, it's all connected organically. I think I, the definition, the short one I gave you is something like it studies how the Bible progresses, integrates, and climaxes in Jesus, so, something like that. Is that a hand in the back? No. Okay. Just stretching. Careful. You stretch here. I'll call on you. Okay. So now what I'd like to do, I'm going to take a couple steps. First, I'm going to ask this question and answer it. What are different ways that evangelicals do biblical theology? How, how do people do it? And I'm going to share three basic ways, and then I'll check what time it is. If there's time, I'll, I'll ask another question, how should we approach typology? And then if there's time, I'll illustrate that by answering the question, what is the biblical theology of the Sabbath? So we might even get the question too. I think we can, um, but that's, that's what's, uh, what's on the docket. So let's start with that first question. What are different ways that evangelicals do biblical theology? And I think, when I say, by the way, when I say evangelicals, I'm thinking like Christians who believe the, the Bible's God-breathed and errant, et cetera, et cetera. There, there are different ways to, to define evangelical. Um, there's a theological way and a sociological way, and the, our media does it sociologically. When it says evangelicals, they think of it as anyone who claims to be an evangelical. I just mean people who believe the evangel, the gospel. Uh, so that, just qualify what I mean by the term. So uh, evangelicals do biblical theology in at least three overlapping ways. Here they are. Number one, analyze the message. Number two, trace themes. And number three, tell the story. Analyze the message, trace themes, and tell the story. And it's ideal, I think, to study biblical theology in that order, in those steps. So you'd want to analyze the theological message of each book of the Bible and the message of sections of the Bible, and then trace themes through the Bible and then see how it all fits together in the grand storyline. If you start by just telling the story without having studied the message and themes, the central themes, you might fail to understand important aspects of the story. So that seems to make sense. And they're overlapping ways because they're not completely distinct from each other. Uh, and some authors, when they do a biblical theology, combine all three of those approaches in their method. So let me just uh, work through each of those one by one. And at any point, if you have a question, please raise your hand and I'll, let's talk about it. So number one, first is analyze the message. This is a way to do biblical theology. And there are two basic approaches here. You can analyze the message of the whole Bible, or you can analyze the message of books of the Bible or sections of the Bible. So let me talk about it in those different uh, ways. If you analyze a message of the whole Bible, you're analyzing the Bible's overall burden. So a, a book's message is, 
is the author's overall burden. It's kind of like if someone preaches a sermon and you say, what, what was the message of that sermon? Uh, if you ask a preacher that, if the preacher prepared well, he should be able to answer that in one sentence to concisely state the, the theme of that sermon. If, if a preacher can't articulate that, then I feel sorry for the people listening to the sermon. <laughs> like, what are they going to think? If they, so you, if I'm missing the pulpit, fog in the pew, right? So if you want to be razor, razor clear on what you're, razor clear, I just mix metaphors, razor sharp, crystal clear on, on what, what you're talking about. So uh, the book's uh, message um, is not always the same as its content. What's the author writing about? It's not the same as the purpose. Why is the author writing? And I think the most comprehensive way to analyze the Bible's overall message is with a whole Bible biblical theology. So that involves studying the literary theological message of every book of the Bible, every section of the Bible. So I'm mentioning this to you because if you go to start studying biblical theology and you try to buy books on biblical theology, it's helpful to have these categories to look at a book and know, oh, okay, I know what that author is doing. For example, you might find a book that works through biblical theology in a book-by-book way. So Tom Schreiner uh, has a book called The King and His Beauty. It's a 2013 whole Bible biblical theology. And basically what he does is go book-by-book through the Bible and study the theological themes of each book and and focus on the theological message of each book. It's it's book-by-book. It's a helpful way to do it. Uh, Some books you might see in a library are on a section of the Bible, like, you know the term Pentateuch? It's the first five books of the Old Testament. They're biblical theologies of the Pentateuch or biblical theologies of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And sometimes you'll find a biblical theology on the whole Old Testament. That's called an Old Testament theology. And sometimes you might have one on just Luke and Acts or on John's writings or Paul's writings or, or the whole New Testament. That's called a New Testament theology. So, here, here's one thing. I teach the, a class every year called New Testament Background and Message. And what I do throughout the semester is I, I require the students in the seminary to read a whole book of the New Testament in one sitting, which takes a while if it's one of the Gospels or Acts, and then to write in one sentence the theological message of that book. And then they have to unpack it in a paragraph. But it, the students all put their one sentence in a Google spreadsheet. And then in class, I put each sentence on the board and dissect each one. One by one. I do that for every sentence every week where the students have to make a case for what they think the theological message of each book of the New Testament is. It's really a great exercise for them, and I enjoy it. Uh, What that's doing, though, is teaching students to read with a literary sensitivity to each book of the New Testament. Some, uh, Some people can impose a single literary theme on the whole Bible and say that's also the theme of every book of the, of the Bible. I'm thinking of a, a friend of mine. I'm trying to talk in a way that if he were here, he would say I was fairly representing him. His name is Jim Hamilton. He's a good buddy of mine. So he wrote a book called God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment or something like that. And he argues that the theme of the Bible is that. It's God's glory and salvation through judgment. So by, when God saves people through judgment, that glorifies him. And that's the theme of the Bible. And that's, that's, a, that's a really good way to say the theme of the Bible. But then what he does in the book is he goes through each book of the Bible and argues that that is a literary and theological message of every book of the Bible. Have any of you read that book? Just curious. One, two. Does that fair sound fair to you? Okay. And uh, 
it's a very ambitious project. Uh, he's, he's trying to hit a grand slam on this one, and I'm just not sure that you can say that's a theological message of every book of the, of the Bible. What I want to do uh, is read each book in its literary context and let its distinctive themes come out and then put all those together to make one comprehensive statement for, for the whole Bible. Anyway, that's, that's one way to do it is, is trying to analyze the message. Okay? Questions on that one? Analyze the message? Here's another way to do biblical theology, and that is to trace themes. I mentioned this last night. I think I illustrated it with a theme of temple. Uh, lots of themes you can trace to the whole Bible or parts of the Bible. And some do this as they tell the story of the Bible. So Desi Alexander has a book uh, that's called From Eden to the New Jerusalem, An Introduction to Biblical Theology. And what he does, he creatively starts with Revelation 21 and 22 and then works back to show how what precedes that connects to what, uh, how, how the story culminates at the end. It's very, very creative. Uh, Greg Beale has a biblical theology where he shows how the story cli- climaxes in the, the inaugurated new creation, the already new creation we're in right now, and culminates in the final, the, the not yet new creation at the end. Uh, a lot of authors will trace a single theme through the Bible, and I'll give you a list of some, some themes for which there are whole books just on these themes using a biblical theological approach. So atonement, circumcision, a whole book on biblical theology of circumcision, ethnicity, city of God, covenant, idolatry, image of God, incarnation, kingdom, land, law, marriage, mystery, possessions, prayer, repentance, resurrection, shepherd, temple, work. For each of those themes, you can trace them straight through a whole Bible and in a very edifying way. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite things to do in Bible study. Uh, but also, there are books that don't trace a theme through the entire Bible, but just through a part of the Bible. So maybe it's a book of the Bible, or part of a book of the Bible, or a section of the Old Testament, or a section of the New Testament, like the Gospels, or through the whole New Testament. Um, and everything I just said, I've got footnotes with many, many books for each one of those, just illustrating how you can do this with biblical theology. You trace themes. So, you with me so far? Analyze a message. Trace themes. These are ways to do biblical theology. Here's a third way, and that's to tell the story. And this is probably the most common way people do biblical theology, telling the story. Uh, this overlaps with those other two, analyzing the message and tracing the themes, because as you tell the story, you trace central themes and sometimes analyze the message of parts of the Bible or the Bible as a whole. Um, there's a, a creative way to do this with the theme of king and kingdom. So there's a recent book by Nick Rourke and Robert Klein, it's 2018, very recent, called Biblical Theology, How the Church Faithfully Teaches the Gospel. And they tell the story through the lens of kingdom or king, with 15 headings. I'm going to read the headings to you. This is very clever. So, telling the story, they say, number one, the king creates and covenants. Two, the king curses. And then the king judges. The king blesses. The king rescues. The king commands. The king leads. The king rules. The king casts out. The king promises. The king arrives. You know where we are yet in the story? (laughs) That's when Jesus comes. Uh, The king suffers and saves. The king sends. The king reigns. 
and the king returns. So those, those are 15 hooks on which you can hang every aspect of the Bible's storyline. It's, it's, it's very good, very good. I think the most helpful biblical theology books for children use a storytelling approach. So you might have some of these in your home, and if you do, this is going to give you a category for how it fits in this whole thing. So David Helm, the Big Picture Story Bible, any of you have that one? A few of you? Okay, That's, that is biblical theology using the theme of kingdom to tell the story. How about this one? Uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones, the Jesus Storybook Bible, Every Story Whispers His Name. Anyone have that one? A few of you? Yeah. So that, that is telling the story. That's a biblical theological approach to Scripture by just telling the story, focusing on how it all climaxes and culminates in Jesus. You know, notice how, how those stories get to Jesus over and over and over? That's on purpose. Here's another book for kids by Champ Thornton, God's Love, a Bible storybook. You familiar with that one? No? Very good one. Wor- worth, worth adding. Um, Kevin DeYoung has a little one called The Biggest Story, How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. I was just reading that to my youngest right before I came out here on the plane. Uh, it just tells the story. Uh, I don't remember what the third book was. I think I mentioned David Helm, South, ah, Champ Thornton. God's Love, a Bible storybook. That's uh, 2012. Sorry about that. You're welcome. You're welcome. So this, this storybook approach is great, and I'm not an expert at raising kids, rearing children, uh, but for what it's worth, we've tried to just deluge our children with storybooks uh, of the Bible so that the story is, they've got a framework for reading the Bible. Tell the story over and over and over and over. Um, and adults love a good story too. And some of the, the, some books on biblical theology present it by telling the overall story in a theologically informed way. So I'll mention a few books here that, that might be helpful to you. Uh, D.A. Carson, my mentor, wrote a book called The Gagging of God, Christianity Confronts Pluralism, and for a couple hundred pages in the middle of that book, he tells the story. There's a more accessible version you might enjoy more called The God Who Is There, Finding Your Place in God's Story. It's just, it's excellent, excellent. It's the lectures he gave to my church, um, and they're, I had to transcribe them. Long story. Anyway, it's, it's excellent, excellent. So, I've heard the name N.T. Wright. So, I've, I have questions about some of his positions theologically, but boy, is that man gifted at telling stories in, a gift, in a, an engaging way. Uh, you know, hearing some thoughtful pushback for some of the things he argues, but again, uh, what, what we can learn from from these fellows I mentioned is how to tell the Bible's story in a way that is accurate, engaging, has the big picture in view, thinking about which are the major themes throughout the Bible storyline that are central that we need to try to connect throughout the storyline. That, that's what biblical theology does. All right, now before I go on, let me just pause there. Do you have questions about anything I said so far? I heard last night some people thought I talked quickly, so I'm talking slowly. And yes, yes, ma'am. Um, Her, uh, Lynette's, Lynette, right? Lynette's question is, if you want to study an attribute of God, 
does that fit in this biblical theological framework? What do you think? Any guesses? What does it fit? So there are a couple of ways. It depends how you approach it. There's a way you could approach it where when you study an attribute of God, you use a systematic theology approach where it's not focusing on the storyline. It's just trying to say, I want to know what's true and, and learn from aspects of the story to kind of compile it in a, in a systematic way. If you did it in a biblical theological way, what you would be doing is looking at how that attribute of God, uh, how God reveals that in different parts of the story. So you could study, say, the attribute of God's love or uh, his holiness or whatever, and you could trace that through. Absolutely. So I'll give you an example of what that would look like for, for God's holiness. So if you're telling the story, you could start like this. Um, the Bible is a story about how the holy God created holy people who then lost that holiness, and then God sent his holy son to die for un unholy people to make them holy. And God has made his people holy and will fully and finally make them holy in the future. So it's using a, a theme like that, to, but you tell it through the storyline grid. And then you need to ask systematic theology questions like, well, you know, what is holiness? Uh, the holiness of God is essentially the godness of God. It's what makes God God and no one else God. So God's glory is his displaying his holiness. His, his holiness is his uniqueness. It's what he is that no one else is. It's his godness, essentially. And people and things are holy only in relation to God. We are holy only in relation to God. Uh, the, the, the shovel that shoveled ash out of the, from the sacrifices in the temple, the shovel was holy. The, the clothes that the priests wore were holy. They're holy because of the relation to God and, and the purpose to which he commissioned them. Uh, so what I'm doing right now is just trying to say, I'm, I'm trying to answer the question of God's attribute of holiness in the storyline. You're nodding, so I think that makes some sense to you. Yeah? Other questions about analyzing the message, tracing the theme, telling the story? It's a good question, why not? Okay. Last chance for this. Ah, I knew there was somebody. His question was, what if someone says, the, when you say tell the story, is that just kind of a modern phenomenon where, you know, storytelling is culturally more popular now, and someone says, yeah, it's, just, it's a fad. It, that basically, so I'd say, well, let's look at the Bible, look at the, the genres, the styles of literature in the Bible. How much of the Bible's style of literature is story? Take a guess. Someone said 60%. It just gets tricky because some of the stories also in poetry format. It's a, yeah, but it, whatever it is, it's over 50%. It's a lot. The whole Bible does not look like one of Paul's letters, right? Uh, most of the Bible is stories. And in the history of the world, how have, have cultures communicated? Is there, is there a culture in the world that has communicated without stories? I mean, of, of every way of communicating, what is more fundamental than telling a story. So God communicates to us with stories. As far as I know, I'm, I don't know every single culture, but as far as I know, I don't know a culture that doesn't communicate without telling stories. Today, people still love stories. That's a wonderful way to communicate. Why would we not 
want to tell the Bible's story if it is a story. That, that's what I, so I don't think it's a fad. I think if it's popular now, it's popular for a good reason, not a bad reason. Is that what you're getting at? Okay. Okay, so that's how, how people do biblical theology. Now, before I, I illustrate that with the Sabbath, I'd like to ask this question. How should biblical theology approach typology? Because this is, this is interconnected with, with analyzing the message and tracing themes and telling the story. Typology is part of all three of those. So let me define typology, just explain what it is, and I'll give you a chance, a chance to ask questions about this. Because sometimes you hear this term and you might think, oh, everyone knows what this is except me, it's, or it's fuzzy in your thinking. So I'll, let me see if I can help clarify what it is. So typology, here's a definition. Typology analyzes how New Testament persons, events, and institutions fulfill Old Testament persons, events, and institutions by repeating the Old Testament situations at a deeper climactic level in salvation history. I'll say that again. Typology analyzes how New Testament persons, events, and institutions, we, we call those, the technical term is antitype. It, it studies how antitypes fulfill Old Testament persons, events, and institutions. We call those types. By repeating the Old Testament situations at a deeper climactic level in salvation history. So here, there's a man named David Baker wrote a classic book on this called Two Testaments, One Bible, and he, he defines it this way. I'm going to quote him. A type is a biblical event, person, or institution that serves as an example or pattern for other events, persons, or institutions. Typology is the study of types and the historical and theological correspondences between them. And the basis of typology is God's consistent activity in the history of his chosen people. Let me see if I can put this into normal language, using terms that we don't normally use in, in normal language there. So it's saying you've had a person like Moses or an event like the Exodus or an institution like the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And God designed those knowing that later Jesus would be the climax of those by repeating them somehow, or, or someone would repeat, repeat it in relation to Jesus. So Jesus is the new Moses, for example. What was the other example I gave? Person, event, Exodus, Exodus. Jesus brings the second Exodus and uh, the sacrificial system. Jesus is the final priest who fulfills the… So you see, it, the, God designed people, events, and institutions so that they would point to Christ. And when we read the New Testament and see how it's fulfilling these people and events and institutions, we see how God designed it that way so that we would exult in Jesus and see him as fulfilling all of that. Does that make, make sense to you? Okay, so now let me unpack here four elements of typology that I think are, are essential for it to work. So they're analogy, historicity, foreshadowing, and escalation. So I'll, I'll explain each one of those. Uh, first one's brief, analogy. So the, the type, like Moses, and the antitype, Jesus, the, the new Moses and greater Moses, they are analogous. They're similar in some way. Uh, and so they correspond, they compare. There's something uh, that is 
making them seem similar. I mean, typology is more than just analogy, but not less. That's, just, that's the basic starting point. Second, historicity. The type and the anti-type occur in real history. So it's not allegory, it's actual history. Uh, so allegory doesn't require the events to be historical. Typology does. So allegory creates a symbolic world that's not based in actual history. Typology is based on actual history. And, and what allegory means depends on this outside the text, this extra textual grid. But what typology means depends on actual historical events that the text narrates and explains. So here's an example. Paul argues that Adam is a type of Christ. Adam is the covenantal head of all humans, and Christ is the covenantal head of the new creation. This is Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul's argument necessarily implies that Adam really existed as the first human being. So I'm arguing that because Adam is a type, that the typology is involved, that Adam's real. He's a historical figure. You might be wondering, uh, yeah, of course he's real. I'm mentioning this because there, there are many people who would argue that Adam in the Bible is not an actual human being. He's not the first human being, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm arguing, well, based on how typology works, he must be historical. Okay? That's, that's second. Third is foreshadowing. You've got analogy, historicity, now foreshadowing. God sovereignly designed the type to foreshadow the anti-type. So God sovereignly designed types to be indirectly prophetic. They predictively pre prefigure Christ who fulfills the Old Testament. Now this gets uh, a little tricky, and I wish, uh, I guess uh, Pastor Brent and Dan Davey are all gone so I can say whatever I want now and I won't get in trouble. That's great. Uh, pressure's off. Uh, I'm joking. Um, so here's a, here's a controversial question. How does authorial intent work here between God and the human authors? So, the, so imagine like Jeremiah writes the book. Is what Jeremiah intended what God intended? You understand my question? So this is what makes the Bible unique literature. It's, it's God-breathed. God wrote it, and humans wrote it. They both wrote it. And the question becomes, well, is, is what the author intended, the human author intended, what, what God intended? And I think the answer is yes. So a more focused question is, could God intend even more than the human author was aware? Some of you are saying yes. I think Pastor Brent would say yes, too. I would say yes. Those of you who know Pastor Brent, would he say yes? I just got a nod. Okay, I, pressure's off. All right, I'm just going to let it rip. All right, so the anti-type, that is Jesus, is consistent with what the human author of a type intended to communicate. But I'd say that sometimes the human author of a type is aware that what he writes is, is prophetically looking forward in a predictive sense. Like, like imagine Moses writing uh, some of the Pentateuch. He's conscious that what he writes is part of this typological trajectory pointing forward to the Messiah. But sometimes I think that the human author who wrote the Bible in, in the Old Testament is unaware that what he writes is part of a typological trajectory that will climax in the Messiah. And that, that typological connection 
may be evident only after the fact. So, like, imagine uh, Hosea, who, who, who writes uh, one of the, the, the Minor Prophets books, and uh, Matthew quotes Hosea, of course, in chapter 2, citing Hosea 11. And Hosea, if you were to interview him after that, might say, uh, you know, I wasn't, when I wrote that, I wasn't thinking exactly what Matthew was when he wrote that. But what Matthew wrote and how he, how he shows how it connects, that's exactly in line with what I intended. I just didn't know all the details. I was unaware of, all, of how this would all be fulfilled. But that's in line with what I, what I was intending. I think that's what I'm talking about. The human author is unaware of all the ways that the, the type will work. But looking back, he's not going to go, oh, that's definitely not what I meant. No, he's going to say it's consistent with what, with what he meant. So maybe if I give you an example... That might, might make it more clear here. Um, first, let me say this. How do, how do the divine and human authors relate regarding uh, what they intended to communicate? Here's one sentence that summarizes what I'm trying to say. God may intend more, but not less than what the human authors intended to communicate. God may intend more, but not less than what the human authors intended to communicate. So, let me give you an example. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, He's arguing that, in 1 Corinthians 10, that, that types are inherently foreshadowing, forward-looking, prophetic, prospective. And that's why one Old Testament scholar, named, uh, Michael Barrett, calls typology picture prophecy. It's a picture pointing to something more important. And the picture is not identical to what it points to. It just illustrates it. And that's why I think sometimes that picture prophecy works retrospectively. Once you see it, then you make the connection. Okay? So, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, this is what I wrote a dissertation on, so I, uh, I'll try to be brief. Uh, it's Romans 11, 34, and 35. So this is the, at the end of Romans 11, where, where Paul just exults, uh, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. You know that passage? So he's exulting in how, how unsearchable the riches of, of, of God are. And then he goes in verse 34 and 35, he quotes Isaiah 40, 13, and Job 41, 10, 11, 12, around there. He says, um, who can know the mind of the Lord, or who, is, who, can be his, who has been his counselor? So that's quoting Isaiah. And then he quotes Job, um, and who can uh, repay God, basically? Who, 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 how's, I forgot the passage, how's it go? Uh, what's 35? 1135. You guys aren't helping me. Someone look it up. Who is, say it again? Who is given to God? Can't hear anybody. I'm going to look it up. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, okay. That's, that's good. Thank you. All right, so that, that passage. So what I, what I did, uh, is try to trace why did Paul quote Isaiah and Job there in his argument. So I just followed this, this formula for trying to see the, the use of the old and the new, where I looked at the New Testament context, the Old Testament context, look at, looked at textual criticism issues, and then uh, tried to focus on, is there a hermeneutical warrant Paul had for using the Old Testament the way he did, and then how did he use it theologically? And this is the discovery I found that just shocked me. When you study the broader context of Isaiah and the broader context of Job and the broader context of Romans, all of a sudden, they're lining up 
in what I think is a typological trajectory, where in each case, you've got God's people expecting one, God to do one thing and God not doing it, and then God promising to, to do something else to deliver them in a way that's unexpected. I lined up like seven or eight ways that just lined up for each of the passages, and then they, like all three passages line up and they climax in Jesus being the one fulfilling those promises. And when I put it all together, I thought, back, am I the only guy seeing this? Because it makes me nervous if I'm the only one seeing it. And I found a couple others, like Tom Schreiner's commentary made it to some degree. My, my point is that if you read Job or read Isaiah, you're probably not going to think, oh, yeah, I'm going to quote those in Romans 9 to 11. But when you see it in Romans 9 to 11 and then reflect back, then you're like, oh, I see a connection there. That makes sense. Some, a lot of times typology works that way where later on someone, a New Testament author makes a connection and that forces you to look back and you go, oh, I see the connection now. So I think sometimes typology is clearer in the rearview mirror, so to speak. Okay. I'm afraid I'm losing some of you. Uh, stay with me, please. Stay with me. All right, so to typology, analogy, historicity, foreshadowing, real quickly, escalation, then I'll illustrate this with the Sabbath. I think that'll crystallize this. Escalation. The, the anti-type that in Jesus escalates the type from shadow to reality by climaxing in Jesus. So that the anti-type eclipses the type. The type is a shadow. The anti-type is the substance. So Colossians 2 says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to, to Christ. So God designed some types to repeat and develop through the covenants before they climax in Jesus, but the anti-type is always greater than the previous types. So what I'm saying is this. The Bible is one big story. It's all about Jesus. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament points to Jesus. He's the climax of every typological trajectory. So if you interpret the Bible in a way that does not point to Jesus, then you're not interpreting the Bible in the way that Jesus himself said you should. Luke 24, John 5. So this doesn't mean that every New Testament passage points to Jesus in the same way or that or something like that where you have to force it. I'm just saying that every passage points to Jesus in some way, and biblical theology is, is investigating how, and typology is one of the ways to do that. Now, one little, one little debate here that, that some have is, can we identify a type if the New Testament does not identify it as a type? So there's one, one scholar with the Lord now named Roy Zuck, spelled Z-U-C-K, he, he argues that the New Testament must designate the type and the anti-type. So he, he says there are only 17 types in the Bible. I'll, I'll read you his list of 17. He's got two persons, Melchizedek and Aaron. And he's got eight events, Passover feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, Pentecost, Trumpets, Atonement, Tabernacles, and Sabbath. And then he has seven things. Tabernacle, tabernacle curtain, burnt offering, grain offering, fellowship offering, sin offering, and guilt offering. And that's it. No more. And that approach, I think, is safe. It's neat. It's tidy. But I think it's too restrictive. And when the author of Hebrews, in, in Hebrews 9.5, says, uh, he mentions various types related to the tabernacle, he kind of has this aside comment where he says, of these things we can't now speak in detail. 
I think that implies that there are typological connections that Scripture doesn't fully explain. And one of the joys we have is to make those connections by following the examples of the New Testament authors and, and noting types like the Noahic flood and the land and Joseph. So uh, typology is not a fancy technique to interpret the Bible. It's just a result of drawing out the meaning of Bible passages in light of the whole Bible. Okay, I'll pause there for a second before going on to Sabbath. Is that clear at all about typology? Fuzzy still? You want to push back and clarify? I have a question here. Yep. What I had in mind is uh, an Old Testament author might write something and not know, it's, it's not know the, the full extent of how that connects to Jesus. Right. But God knows it perfectly, completely, fully. And later on, once, once the New Testament is written, if the Old Testament author sees that, he'd go, oh yeah, that's consistent with what I meant. I just didn't know how it would connect. That's all I'm saying. I don't remember him saying that, but that sounds good to me. He is quoted J.I. Packer. Yeah. Other questions or comments? Sir, right here and then over there. Yes. How do you make sure not... Uh, does it ever get, like, silly? He says, does biblical theology or typology ever get silly? Like, where it's inappropriate. Like, where it's, yeah. Right. So basically the question is, can, can you overdo this? Can you do it irresponsibly? Yes, 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 yes. I could give you examples that would make you cry. But I'm, it's, yes. So people, people do this in very irresponsible ways. And sometimes when people hear, hear, hear this topic of typology, they think of people who have done it in irresponsible ways, and they're afraid of that, and so they don't want to do it because they associate it with being irresponsible. And my pushback would be, just do the right thing responsibly. Just because so many people have abused this doesn't mean we don't do it at all. Um, I'm not trying to be offensive, uh, going on the offensive here. Yeah, the, your question was absolutely right to, to cl clarify, though. There are people who don't do this well. Uh, and honestly, there are people even in our, who are very sympathetic with the same theology that this church has, who maybe too superficially go from an Old Testament text to Jesus in a way that th th their, their intent is they want to get to Jesus, but when you hear them do it, you think, I'm not sure that's the way to do it. Uh, we, just, we want to make sure when we get to Jesus, we do it the right way, responsibly. Is there more you wanted to say to that? Um, where's the line? Where's the line? Uh, well, you want to make sure there's a real analogy there, and you want to make sure you're tracing it in line with the authorial intent, and you want to see escalation and reading it in their literary context. So the example you gave was this, 
the Rahab and the spies and the scarlet and where the scarlet points to Jesus. Um, there's nothing about the literary context that would suggest anything close to that. Um, and no New Testament passage that makes anything like that connection. I just don't know what the warrant would be for making that connection. I'm guessing there's something underneath your question. We can talk after more. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Over here. She says she teaches four-year-olds, and when they teach a story, they try to make it understandable for four-year-olds. Reverse that. Joseph is a type of Jesus. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So basically you're looking for patterns, persons, events, or institutions that God designed to make us look to Jesus as the, the greater, the greater person, the greater event, the greater institution, and, and see that connection. And if you can make a case for that responsibly, you might be tentative about it and say, you know, I'm not confident, totally confident, but this seems to be there. So you can talk about this in degrees of confidence and, and with hypotheses. That's okay. Uh, but I, I don't think we should be shying away from trying to make those connections because we might mess up. Uh, so I think we want to leave, uh, leave a little room for, for grace for people who are suggesting things. So you got to be careful how confident you get if the Bible doesn't explicitly make the connection. So like the Joseph connection, the, the New Testament never calls Joseph a type of Christ. So I would be less confident making that connection. If I were preaching through the Joseph story, I would be clear to say up front, the New Testament never makes this connection. I think there is a connection. Let me show you why it's there and how I think it works. A friend of mine named Sam Amadi wrote a PhD dissertation on just that topic. It's masterful. You can get it if you just Google Amadi, E-M-A-D-I, uh, dissertation, and you can download it on the Southern Baptist Seminary uh, Library dissertation site. It's genius. Uh, it's really well done. But that just shows you the work that goes behind making that kind of connection. Uh, very thoughtful. Yes, in the back. Yeah, so we talk about the risk of doing it. What are the liabilities of not doing it? If you don't, if you don't study t typology, what are we losing? Um, I love typology because it helps me marvel at how genius, brilliant, mind-blowingly deep God is and how he designed the whole thing. And... I can look at, I can read the Bible over and over and over and over and over and over and miss stuff. And then when I see a connection, like, oh, how did I miss that? It, it just makes me praise God in a more rich way that I wouldn't other, otherwise do. So I think we're missing out on opportunities to marvel at how great God is and how great our Savior is when we don't think through these connections. Because if God designed the connections in real history, he intends for us to see them and to glorify him, to praise him for, for designing it that way. I mean, imagining uh, God, if God were answering your questions, how do I paraphrase 
I, okay, I don't mean to do that. But I imagine, let's say you ask an angel. Yeah, okay, I can paraphrase an angel. He might say, God wrote a book to you. He wrote it down. It's in words. Why aren't you studying it carefully? There's so much there. And you're so content to have your five minutes a day devotional. Or I, There is so much there. There are people in this church, in, this, uh, in your school, who have devoted their lives, their full-time occupation is just doing this kind of thing. And you can ask one of, one of the profs here, you think, you think you'll ever exhaust it? No. You, you could put together all the most brilliant minds in the world to try to do this, and you'll never exhaust it. So my exhortation to you, if, if not, your, not your profession, is why would you not want to study this if it helps you understand God better and to praise him more richly and to understand the story better? It's just so satisfying. I can testify in studying this. It's so satisfying to see these connections and exult in our Savior. Is that kind of what you're wondering? Okay. All right. Do you have time for a quick example of the Sabbath? Let's do that. So I'll illustrate what I'm talking about by asking, uh, what's a biblical theology of the Sabbath? So you all meet for your church services on Sunday, correct? Do you guys have like a football league on Sunday or a basketball league on Sunday? Is that because you think it's sinful? Do you guys... Uh, don't answer that. Don't answer that. Um, these are leading questions. I'm trying to make you think. Like, do some of you think if, if you have uh, fellow church members who work on Sunday, is that sinful? Is it wrong to go to a restaurant on Sunday? Must the church meet on Sunday? All right, I'm just raising some questions to get you thinking here. If we take so much for granted when we think about Sunday and Sabbath and, and such, and we may not have thought through this one. So... Real quickly here, we have 10 minutes. What is a biblical theology of the Sabbath? The Old Covenant required God's people to keep the Sabbath. But you are not under the Old Covenant. You're under the New Covenant if you're a Christian. So how do those under the New Covenant relate to the Sabbath commandment in the Old Covenant? And there are some people, you might have friends who think this, maybe some here, who, who keep the Sabbath and they maintain that the Sabbath, the Sabbath maintains from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. So some will meet as, as a group to worship on Saturdays. Some will transition from Saturdays to Sundays. But the point is, they think it maintains. I argue that Christ transforms the Sabbath commandment. All right. So those who believe that, that the Sabbath maintains include Seventh-day Adventists, Covenant theologians, some Lutherans, those who believe that Christ transforms the Sabbath include those holding to what's called dispensationalism. There are various kinds of that. And progressive dispensation or, or, or progressive covenantalism. You don't, you don't need to know these terms, but I'm trying to give you framework for, for how people take this. So what I'm going to do quickly is trace the Sabbath theme in three periods before the, the, uh, the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, and after the Old Covenant. So right now, under the, old, the New Covenant. So first, what was the Sabbath like before the Old Covenant? So remember, in, in the story of God's creating the world, in Genesis 1 and 2, does it use the word Sabbath? Nope. Nope. It uses rest. 
uh, a time of rest. And that's what Sabbath refers to. God created the universe in six days, and he rested on the seventh. And God did not rest because he was tired or lazy. Uh, his days of work and one day of rest set a work-rest pattern for humans. But God did not command Adam or any of the patriarchs to refrain from working on the Sabbath. That is, the seventh day, Sunday. The first time that God commanded people to keep the Sabbath was shortly before the Mosaic Law. So here's the context. It's in Exodus 16. So God uh, delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians. He gives them the Ten Commandments uh, and the rest of the Old Covenant. Uh, right before he gives them the, the Ten Commandments, though, he provided bread from heaven for his people in the wilderness. Remember this? Exodus 16. And he instructed the people to gather the bread each day and to take one omer per person, about two quarts or two liters. And if the people gathered more than that, it would breed worms and stink. But the rules were different for gathering on Friday. On Friday, they were supposed to gather twice as much and not gather any on Saturday. And the text, it's, it's uh, Exodus 16, 22 to 30. I won't read the whole thing here. You probably are familiar with it. But the, the point of it is that uh, the Lord says, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So I think four observations are noteworthy about this here. Uh, one, keeping the Sabbath appears to be new for God's people at this point in history. There's no evidence that prior to this event, they religiously refrained from working on the Sabbath. Two, when people in the wilderness broke the Sabbath, Moses rebuked them. But later, under the old covenant, people who broke the covenant who broke that commandment, were guilty of death, guilty for death. The penalty was death. So the penalties are different. Third, the Sabbath, a day of rest, was a gift. It was a present that God gave the Israelites, and the Israelites dishonored God when they didn't value God's good gift. And number four, the Sabbath was a way to sanctify God's people by testing whether they would trust him to sufficiently provide for them. So God's people dishonor him when they disregard what he commands because they think they're smarter than God. So that's before the Old Covenant. Then the Sabbath under the Old Covenant. Let's look at that. The Old Covenant forbids God's people to work on Saturdays. This is in Exodus 20, Exodus 31, Exodus 35, Leviticus 23, Numbers 15, Deuteronomy 5. Over and over and over, God says, don't do any work on the Sabbath. And I'll make six observations about all those passages. Number one, the Sabbath command protected vulnerable people like servants and sojourners. The head of a household was responsible to ensure that every member of his household rested on Saturday. Number two, the Sabbath command required God's people to cease working, no plowing or harvesting, no kindling a fire or gathering sticks or buying goods or food. But it did not require them to gather to worship. Israelites were free to assemble to worship on the Sabbath, but the essence of the Sabbath command was not to worship, it was to rest under the Old Covenant. Number three, keeping the Sabbath was a sign of the temporary Old Covenant. So a covenant's sign lasts only as long as the covenant. It's not binding on those who aren't under the covenant. Number four, breaking the Sabbath command under the Old Covenant was a criminal offense with the penalty of death. And that's far severer than the, the rebuke Moses gave in, in, number 16, in, in Exodus 16. Five, 
The ground for the Sabbath command in Exodus 20, verse 11, is that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. But it does not follow that because God roots the Sabbath command in creation, that therefore the Sabbath command is universally binding, specifically that it's binding on God's people under the new covenant. There's no evidence that God required his people to cease working on the Sabbath prior to Exodus 16. And the New Testament reveals that the Sabbath command no longer applies to God's people under the new covenant. I'll come to that in a moment. And then observation six, when Moses restates the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, the ground for the Sabbath command differs from Exodus 20, verse 11. The ground is that God delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians. And that implies that the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites to work without sufficient rest. So the Israelites knew what it was like for an oppressor to victimize them by forcing them to work without breaks. And God graciously reminded the Israelites that his command to rest on the Sabbath was a gift for their good. It reminded the Israelites that God delivered them from the cruel forced labor in Egypt. Okay, so now let's wrap this up. The Sabbath under the new covenant. Jesus transforms how those under the new covenant relate to the Sabbath. And the issue here is typology. The rest that God gave his old covenant people on Saturdays is a type. And the rest that Jesus gives his new covenant people every day is the anti-type. Now let me unpack that. And it's already, oh, I have only three minutes. No. I'm going to talk fast. Sorry, I'm going to stop talking slowly. This is killing me talking slowly. Okay. Uh, the only one of the Ten Commandments that the New Testament doesn't repeat is the Fourth Commandment. It's about observing the Sabbath. And, and why? I mean, the New Testament repeats the other nine. Why doesn't it repeat the fourth? It's because Jesus transforms the fourth commandment. It doesn't carry over untouched. So Jesus was born under the law, so he observed the Sabbath. He kept the law prior to, his, prior to the cross. But he taught that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He offered true rest to his followers, and he flouted the extra rules about the Sabbath that the Pharisees insisted were necessary to obey God. Read Matthew 11 on that. So, Three main boundary markers distinguish Jews in New Testament times. Food laws, circumcision, and Sabbath. All three are connected with what God requires his people to do under the old covenant. And all three are no longer necessary for God's people to follow under the new covenant. Paul rebuked the Galatians for legalistically observing Jewish holy days, which included the Sabbath. He said, you observe days and months and seasons and years. So the Sabbath command under the Old Covenant is a type that Jesus fulfills and that culminates in the new heavens and new earth. That's why Paul wrote this in Colossians 2. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or, and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And Hebrews 10 verse 1 makes a parallel argument. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So under the old covenant, God's people had to offer sacrifices. Under the new covenant, God's people no longer offer sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus fulfills that type as the once-for-all-time sacrifice to which the sacrifice is pointed. Similarly, under the old covenant, God's people had to keep the Sabbath. But under the new covenant, God's people no longer have to keep the Sabbath because Jesus fulfills that type by giving the ultimate rest. So we shouldn't revert back to the type now that the anti-type is here. 
So the Sabbath now versus in the new heavens and new earth parallels the already not yet aspects of the kingdom of God now versus later. So I'd say for a Christian right now, every day is a day of Sabbath rest in Jesus. We've already entered the Sabbath that Jesus secured, and we will fully enter that rest in the future. Give me just a few more seconds, if that's okay, if I may indulge you. Uh, So how should Christians treat the Sabbath? Is it a matter of conscience? I say yes. Uh, The theologically correct position is that Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath, but as with other matters of conscience, it's 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 heretical for a person to insist that observing the Sabbath is necessary to be a Christian. That distorts the gospel. But we can get along with other Christians who disagree on maybe we should treat Sunday in a special way. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, what about the Lord's Day? Uh, churches historically worship together on Sundays. What, what do we do with that? Well, Israel followed the six plus one pattern. The early church followed the one plus six pattern. That is, Israel worked six, rested one. Churches worshiped on Sundays. The first day of the week, Acts 20, 1 Corinthians 16. So why Sunday? Probably, almost certainly, because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. It's the resurrection day. It's the Lord's day, Revelation 1.10. But it does not follow that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath or that it's sinful for a church to worship on a day of the week other than Sunday. I have friends in Dubai who meet for their church services on Friday because that's the day off for the people in that, in that culture. And I think that's Okay. I prefer Sunday in our cultural context because we have weekends off and Sunday's the day Christ rose from the dead and it's consistent with most of church history and Sunday, I think, is the Lord's day. That makes sense, but I don't call it a Christian Sabbath. One more question. So should, should humans follow the pattern of working six days and resting one? I think so. I think that's a creation principle of, uh, that God gave us that it's wise for us to follow. A weekly day of rest is a gift from God to refresh us and we can rest so that we can run. We need that rest. Resting helps us increasingly depend on God to meet our needs. But the new covenant does not require that Christians treat Sunday the way old, the old covenant required God's people treat Saturday. And technically it was Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. A Christian has freedom about when to rest one day each week. I, gave, I went two minutes over so what I'm going to do is stay up here, and if you want to ask questions or talk more, I'll be up front. Let me pray, and then you guys can go take your Saturday afternoon naps. Thank you, Lord, for opportunity to think about biblical theology, about how to do it, about how typology works, and thinking about the Sabbath. We so badly want to, to understand and apply your word correctly. Would you enlighten our minds to do that and give us joy as we go on our ways now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.